And as you're seated, please turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we do have Bibles available out in the foyer and uh, encourage you to pick one up and follow along. We go verse by verse through these passages, you know, line by line through it because we believe that God has a word for us even as we look at it line by line. And I appreciate being back and very much appreciate Pastor Sam for his ministry. It's a powerful ministry of the word last week at the last minute, stepping in. It was an amazing sermon, so thank you for your ministry. Well, as we get started today, I want to review where we are in the book of Genesis. Um, we've been working at this through. Uh, we've been working through Genesis since uh, September. And, and finally, here we are in chapter 4. So it really took through, through then to get through uh, just all through the first three chapters. And there's a lot of ground that we've covered as we've uh, looked through Genesis this far. Uh, We've understood how things are supposed to be in God's created world. We've seen God's design for relationships and for marriage. Um, We've seen the value, importance, and the dignity of work. And we've seen how God created um, each one of us for a relationship uh, with himself. That's really all in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And then in the last chapter we looked at, in Genesis chapter 3, we talked about the introduction of sin into the world, sin and evil. And it changed everything. As paradise was lost, as death entered the world, as relationships became conflicted, and, and we spiritually died. And so we covered those things in Genesis 1 through 3. If you've not followed up with any of them, I encourage you to watch them online or, um, you know, look at some of those old notes or care groups. Well, now as we turn to Genesis chapter 4, we're going to see the consequences of Adam and Eve's decision to sin work their way out. What are we going to see? What happened once sin came into the world? And the answer as we get to that first narrative, that first story, the first account of what happened after sin entered the world is to see selfishness, to see faithlessness, to see the violence, and to see the danger of the world that sin left us in. And we see the first murder. It's the story of Cain and Abel, of course, the first two children of Adam and Eve, and we're going to read here how Cain murders Abel. Now, Genesis 4 and 5 together, they kind of form a a mini unit together. And what we see is spirituality after the the fall. And while this story is historical, it shows an important thing that lasts today for us. Is that there's essentially two ways to live. We can live in rebellion towards God, or we can live in a life of faith and obedience to him. Now, today, what we're going to look at is how unbelief leads to a falling away from God. And how that falling away from God leads not only to sin, but greater and greater sin. It's the the start of a longer fall. And so as we look at the world that we're in, you know, we could see sins or things that people do, or even they say that they do, which seem to be relatively small. We might say, no big deal, right? But we might see those alongside unspeakable horrors. Maybe things that we've even seen over the course of this last week around our nation, not to mention around the world. We know of the personal sins of lying, 
We know of anger and of lust, but we also see those greater sins of theft, of murder, of adultery, and abuse. And the thing that we want to see, especially in our passage today, is that there's a, there's a connection between those things. That all sin, big or small, it has that same root. All sin, big or small, has that same starting point. And it starts in rebellion against God. And when we have that in mind, we realize that there are no real small sins. And the toleration of small sins in our lives and in our culture it opens doors for bigger ones later. Now, by his grace, what God does is he calls us away from that destruction. God calls us away from it and providing a way of blessing and of belonging. And that's what we also want to see in our passage today. Now, we're going to do it as we look at Cain's life. We're going to look at Cain, the first child of Adam and Eve, and we're going to see three marks of unbelief in his life, three marks of unbelief in Cain's life. And what we're going to do as we look at that is examine our own lives. We come to the Lord's table today. We're reminded as we come to the Lord's table to examine ourselves. So it's a good time of self-examination. Are there things that we are harboring inside of our lives or hearts? And the call to faith, the call to believe in Jesus Christ and to lay all things before him. Because God does lovingly call us each away from destruction. He calls us in the faith and blessing that Christ Jesus brings. So we're in Genesis chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16. So would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills vain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of our God. The flowers fade and the grass withers, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are in a world of violence and anger. And so, Father, as we look at this, we pray that you would help us to understand that better, but also, in understanding it, see how the gospel of Jesus Christ turns men and women away from that and turns them to something hopeful. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, we want to look at three marks of unbelief in Cain's life. Uh, the first thing we want to look at is the mark of false worship. The, ma- the mark of false worship. And we see this in verses 1 through 5. If you look at verse 1 and 2, you see the arrival of Cain and then the arrival of Abel into the life of his parents, Adam and Eve. And you can imagine these two little babies coming into the world. And as Adam and Eve uh, bring them into the world and see them grow, the immense pleasure that they have in seeing them and the responsibility that they feel as they raise these little ones. Up. And you can also imagine just the possibility that's all laid before them as they look at their life stretching before them. Verse 1 says, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And all that possibility um, you know, comes down all the more with an earth-shattering thud when we see how the story ends and how it concludes. Now, as we look at them, um, we see so many similarities between Cain and Abel here, don't we? Uh, they, they had the same parents. Uh, they grew up in the same place. You know, they were part of the same society. You know, and so nothing that differentiated either one of them comes from anything outside of themselves. You know, there's something that comes up within themselves. Now, we do see some of their differences. Uh, they had different interests. We read that Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain worked with crops like a farmer. And these are both worthy occupations, um, as God had told Adam and Eve to um, take dominion over the whole earth, whether that was in uh, agriculture or whether that was over livestock. And so with, with that, we see that difference. But we see that some differences also showed up, which created such a fissure between them that eventually ended up in Cain murdering his brother. What's the big difference between Cain and Abel? I mean, it really wasn't in the work that they did, but the big difference between them is the kind of worship which they offered to God. The big difference between them is the worship that they offered to God, and we can see that in verses 3 through 5. Verse 3 says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So for Cain and Abel, their worship was um, expressed through these sacrifices they made to the Lord. And you are offerings they made to the Lord. Now, you, you might wonder uh, what commentators have wondered. Well, uh, what would have been wrong with Cain's offering? Why would God reject it? Why would he reject Cain's offering but accept Abel's? Now, one thing uh, that we can be pretty sure about is that the primary problem was not what they offered to the Lord. The primary problem was not what they offered to the Lord. I mean, they both brought what they had to give. They both had honest um, trades that they were involved with. And there was nothing wrong with making an offering to the Lord of livestock or of grain. In fact, if you look at Leviticus chapter 2, you would see that there were times where offerings were to be made of grains and, and offerings of grains which God accepted. You know, God's people were commended to bring all kinds of offerings to the Lord. So the problem was not that Cain brought a grain offering while Abel brought an animal. 
God doesn't ask us to bring what we don't have, remember? You know, he asks us to bring of, of what we have. We can remember the, the story of the widow and the widow's might, um, that it wasn't so much how much that she brought to the temple and offering that day, but it was the expression of her heart that she gave all that she had to give um, to the Lord on that day. God doesn't ask us to bring what we can't bring. But the problem then what was it? The, the problem, I believe, with Cain's sacrifice was in his attitude. It was in his heart of worship that he brought with him that day. You know, Cain's sacrifice, his offering, was rejected because his heart was wrong before the Lord. Now, I think this shows up in at least two ways, if you follow along in the text here. Um, but there's at least two ways that we see Cain's attitude as being selfish instead of serving. First of all, we see we, we see Cain's offering in comparison with Abel's, right? We see Abel's attitude in the way his gifts are described. If you read uh, what he offered, is we see that he brought the firstborn of his flock. And then we see, furthermore, that he brought of their fat portions. You know, this is a costly offering that he's making to the Lord. Abel is bringing the firstborn of his flock, and he's trusting God that even as he offers this, that God would continue to give him more sheep. It truly was an expression of faith and of trust of the Lord. You can also read how um, Abel got, gave of the fat offerings, of the fat portions, which were to understand to be the most valuable parts of this animal. Now, what about Cain? Did he bring his first fruits? I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us either way, but the fact that it's missing makes us think that he wasn't bringing his best offerings to the Lord. Makes us think that he was bringing God uh, from his leftovers, a small percentage, but certainly not his first fruits. as an offering of convenience rather than offering of genuine sacrifice. So the first thing we see is it's his offering in comparison with Abel's and the, and, and the faithfulness we see in Abel's that we just don't see in Cain's offering. The second thing that we see is his attitude when God rejects his offering. Verse 5 finishes by saying that Cain became very angry and his face fell. fell. You know, the, his own response to the rejection of his offering shows something of the attitude that he had when he brought the offering to begin with. Why did he become angry? One of the things that I see as a pastor is the times that people give up on God because, you know, God has not provided the life that they expected him to give them. Some people, they, they say, well, I've worshiped God. I've, I've sacrificed for God. I've volunteered at the church. I've even become a missionary. But my life didn't turn out the way I wanted it. People have treated me badly. I've gotten cancer. I've remained single longer than I wanted to. I've lost a loved one. Timothy Keller wrote a, an article in The Atlantic back in April, speaking about his own cancer diagnosis and his own grappling with the inevitability of his own death coming, because he has pancreatic cancer. But he talked about his decades and decades of being a pastor, and he recalls one woman who had cancer, and she told him, I'm not a believer anymore. That doesn't work for me. I can't believe in a personal God who would do something like this to me. She had cancer, and that cancer killed her God. That's what he says. It killed her God. 
We become, people become angry towards God or even towards other Christians. They leave the church. They become absorbed in themselves, given to anger, isolation, bitterness, and anxiety. Now, that's, those, are, those are some of the things that, that I've seen. And, and you know, there's a, um, you know, a question we might ask is, you know, how many people worship God for what they can get out of God instead of worshiping him simply because he deserves our worship? How many will continue to worship even though the sickness doesn't get better, even though the finances remain tight, even though that the marriage isn't instantly healed. You know, God is ultimately worthy of our worship, regardless of the outcomes of our lives. I think that's one thing this passage demonstrates. Because Cain was giving worship to God in order to get something from God. He figured if he gives the right things, that he can get the right response out of him. But God sees through that. How many people are gathering, even this morning, all around our world and singing or listening, not because that God is worthy of our praise, but because they want blessed lives, they want easy lives, they want happy families, they don't want to go to hell, they want their businesses to work out. How many people are worshiping God for those reasons rather than the, rather than the simple fact that he is worthy of all praise? Jesus himself identifies this as one of the chief problems in worship as he speaks to the religious leaders of his day. Matthew 15, 7 through 9, he says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. I believe that Abel brought his offering to God because God was worthy of his worship. I believe that Cain brought his offering to God in order to get something from him. And when it didn't work out, he became angry and downcast. That's what happens when we give to get. We realize that we cannot manipulate God. We come to him because he's worthy of our worship. Even as Cain made this sacrifice to God, he's showing that his heart was already far from God. It really wasn't worship of God himself, really, right? It was worship of himself. It wasn't worship of God, it was worship of himself. And his explosion afterwards reveals what's really going on inside of him. That's what God revealed. And so the question for us as we gather together for worship is, are you giving to God in order to get something from God? Or are you worshiping him because he's worthy? Do you see his worthiness? It's important before we get to our next point is that not all worship is created equal in God's sight. Not all worship is created equal in God's eyes. You know, I know it's an un-American thing to say. We want this idea that, well, whatever I bring, as long as it's sincere, you know, that, that God should, should receive it. But, you know, we, we see here that this offering that even Cain brought wasn't received. There's a worship that God despises. There's a worship he rejects. There's a worship that angers him. But there's a worship that he's seeking. John 4, 24 tells us, you know, that, that the Father is seeking those who worship in spirit and in truth. There's a worship that God delights in. And that's how Jesus describes it, as he describes what God seeks. May, may we bring that kind of worship to our Lord as we gather together. So Cain, we see him already separated from God. His, his worship has already revealed the separation that's there. But he also demonstrates the separation from God in his next action. That's the second mark we see in verses 6 through 8. The mark of ignoring God's warnings. 
the mark of ignoring God's warnings. At the end of verse 5, remember where Cain was? He was angry with God. His, his face fell. And then at verse 6, God offers him this way out. He exposes Cain's bitterness. He exposes his anger. The false worship is exposed for Cain to see. And what does God do but provide a way of redemption? A way out. Before he makes a bigger mess of his life, of Abel's life, and a greater distance from God. All he needs to do is to repent. Look at verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So God still first points out there's no justification for Cain's anger. Cain is trying to manipulate God. Um, Cain is, is, is doing wrong, not the Lord. And then it, God uses the simple equation for Cain, doesn't he? He shows the way of blessing. If Cain does well, he'd be accepted. If he, if he does not do well, then things would even grow worse. And which of those two paths would Cain choose? The path of life or the path of rebellion? Through faith and obedience to God's commands, he would find blessing. And if he doesn't, in the path of, of sin, he would only find more sin. You know, there's a truth about sin is that sin gives birth to, to sin. Sin tends to stimulate sin. Sin causes it to grow. Sin gives little baby birth to little baby sins. And it just grows and grows and grows. And, and that's God's warning to him in verse 7 there, isn't it? Notice what he says. Sin is crouching at the door. You know, Cain's anger is a slippery slope. Of, of greater sin and greater problems. And the only way out of that is through repentance. That description of sin here is very telling, isn't it? He, God describes sin as a predator, waiting there to pounce, waiting there to overtake, waiting to draw him in into ever-creasing hostilities. It's interesting the way that God describes it here even says that sin has a desire Sin has a, has a plan for your life. And that plan is contrary to your well-being. As much as Cain may think that it is good to be angry, as much as he may think it, he has a right to it, as much as he might think that he's a right to be downcast, as much as he might have the right to be angry, in the end, that sin will only, will only consume him. Do we treat sin in a similar way sometimes? You know, it's this little pet that's on our team. We stroke it. We care for it. We don't really think it's contrary to it. But, you know, in fact, if we groom it just a little bit, you know, maybe it'll help us and give us some comfort, right? People might say, well, I mean, I, I need to remain angry. Because if I don't remain angry, other people will take advantage of me. So people might say, I, I need to use a little pornography so I don't do something worse. People say, I don't need to go to church. I need the extra rest. I have other things that I need to do. You know, these, these sins, they're, they're not a big deal, right? That's not God's answer here to Cain. It's wrong. Sin's desire was contrary to Cain, and sin's desire is contrary to you. Sin is a desire for you, and that's to create new sin. You know, I was thinking about it in light of the recent pandemic, I was thinking about it before I got the coronavirus, as well as afterwards. 
you know, but I was thinking about one of the goals of a virus, right? One of the goals of a virus is to reproduce, right? The goal of a virus isn't to kill somebody. The goal of a virus is to reproduce. It doesn't care whether it kills you or not. All its goal is, is to reproduce inside of you. And so, you know, within especially this coronavirus, and its danger has been because it so easily reproduces inside of our bodies and it passes from one person to another. And, and it makes us pretty sick, but usually not deadly sick. That's part of its danger is because it spreads around so easily. Some people do die. Some people are permanently affected, but most people aren't affected greatly. And that's uh, you know, part of the advantage of that to the virus itself is that it can reproduce more easily. If we were to think like a virus, you know, we would wanted to, we'd want to spread as far and wide as we could. We wouldn't, we wouldn't want to be too deadly, just deadly enough, um, or not, deadly, not too deadly that we couldn't spread. If we're too deadly, we'd kill everybody. We wouldn't want that because we wouldn't be able to reproduce. You know, Ebola is another deadly virus, but it, it kills people so quick that it doesn't spread very fast. It's where coronavirus has been different. Well, sin, its desire is to generate and reproduce sin inside of you. So it might start off small. For Cain, it started off in that small bit of worship. It grew in anger and being downcast, but it would eventually end up in murder. Looked like a cute little pet at first. But those sins have a way to grow up to be dangerous. It's a kitten that grows up to be a lion. And so what is God's instruction to Cain? Is that he needs to rule over it. He needs to rule over his sin. If he doesn't take measures to defeat it, it will rule over him. There's no demilitarized zone. There is no safe place. Either he will kill sin or it will be killing him. Either he will live in a life of obedience and love to God, or he will give his life into sin. Either he will repent of his false worship, his anger, his depression, or he will give in to increase into anger and into violence. This is why verses like Colossians 3.5 speak about our need to kill sin. Talk about mortification, putting our sin to death. So Cain here has his choice, and we have this choice. Are you playing with the small sin? Are you holding on to a bit of anger? Are you refusing to forgive? Are you indulging in a lust? Are you neglecting worship? Are you resentful towards God? God has called you to rule over that, to kill that sin. For Cain, all he needed to do was say, Lord, I've worshiped you in vain. I've harbored anger inside my heart. I've played with depression to get your sympathy. I've thought I've been deserving of something better, and I sinned against you because of it, and I reject that. I repent of my sin. Lord, will you forgive me and help me live the right way? And the good news of God's response to that would have been that there's a Savior who's already defeated sin. You know, sin can seem so powerful there's that sense we just can't help ourselves. We just do it. How are we going to rule over it? How are we going to win it? And the answer is for Jesus to rule over that sin. I mean, he is King Jesus. He's conquered our sin. He's conquered our enemies. And we enter into that victory of Jesus Christ through faith and repentance. We conquer sin by seeing the beauty of Jesus Christ, by seeing how vile sin is. We need to realize that Jesus Christ has overcome sin and that by walking in him, in our union with him, that's where our victory over sin is. It's in his beauty, it's in his wonder. But Cain ignores God's warnings, and we see what happens in verse 8. 
Verse 8 says, Cain spoke to his Abel's brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. He tricks him, and then he murders him. Through all this, Cain has ignored God's warnings. Uh, We see that downward spiral of his life of unbelief, and he's given himself in. And while God offered a way of restoration, of forgiveness, and of acceptance, the Cain has rejected it. Why would he reject God's grace? Why would he reject it when he's just given such a blatant warning? Why do we keep choosing sin when we know the consequences are right there? I mean, it shows the utter irrationality of our sin. I mean, it is irrational to ignore God's commands, and yet that's exactly what he does and what, exactly what we do, right? It shows why we need a Savior. It shows why we need to kill sin. Turn to Christ. Repent of your sins. Take the path of life. There's acceptance in Christ. Take that. Take that. Don't ignore those warnings. All right, so that's the second one. Is the, you know, first was the mark of false worship. Then we see the, the mark of ignoring God's warnings. And the third mark that we see of his unbelief is the mark of regret without repentance. Regret without repentance. Well, God speaks to uh, Cain about his murderous act. We see it in verse 9. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And Cain says back to him, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? I remember a pastor who once said, he said, you know, just remember, if ever you're tempted to use that phrase, whose mouth that came out of before we ever use it. Um, It's Cain who said this. But instead of answering the question, Cain becomes evasive. He lies. And he does something which I've learned recently is called gaslighting, right? In other words, he points back to God, employing God, you should mind your own business. The biggest problem is you, who you're bothering me about something outside of your concern. But here's the thing. You can't gaslight God. The problem was not with God. It wasn't with Abel, but it was with Cain. Cain was supposed to love his brother. Cain was not supposed to violate his brother's life. But Cain chose hate and violence instead. You see his indifference towards sin. You know, just like his parents had done, he was hiding from his own responsibility. And so God tells him what he knows. Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The one thing that struck me as I was reading through this was how the verse is in the present tense. Your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. His brother's blood is currently crying to God. You know, it really gives a sense of, of God's justice being present tense, you know, of, of those sins, those injustices, those evils which have occurred to us in the past or even the present, that those remain very real to God now and he remembers them. That can bring us comfort. Bring us comfort as we know evils that we may have experienced in the past, the time somebody stole something from you, the time you were abused, racism, bullying, the time you were injured. God remembers those. They're fresh memories, and in God's mind, they grieve God. And those injustices cry out to him. He's a just God who will see the justice is done. But on the other side, God's present tense is also uncomfortable. That's because our sins are present tense before him. Unless they're covered by Christ. Unless what, what Christ has done in Psalm 103 applies to us. They remain fresh before the Lord. What does Psalm 103 say? Is he's taken them far away from us as the east is from the west. He's forgiven them. But unforgiven sin remains fresh before the Lord, grieving his heart. 
in condemning us. Now getting back to Cain, God continues this curse upon him. But the very land that Cain has been working on, now he will experience a greater separation. He's going to be separated from the land and also estranged from other people. He's going to become a wanderer. Verse 11, and now you are cursed in the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. See, Cain is spiritually dead. Eventually, he's going to physically die, and then there's going to be a judgment. And what we're going to see here in chapters 4 and 5 is that Cain and his descendants continue to grow farther and farther and farther away from the Lord. You see this generational uh, rebellion that happens that Cain starts, and he passes it on to his children, his children's children. Now, how does Cain respond to this? He responds with sadness, right? You can see it in verses 13 and 14. But he's not sad for what he's done. He's not sad for the murder. He's only sad for the consequences. Because what? He's afraid for his life. He continues to take no responsibility for his actions. You know, one of the things that happens with our own imaginations is that sometimes the very thing that we get sin or activity, we, get, we sometimes can participate in, we get a bad conscience, we can start to think that everybody's doing that. I mean, a person who's perpetually involved in lying to others thinks that other people around them are always lying. You know, it's because that's in, inside the mind. And here you have Cain, this murderer. You know, what is he afraid of? He's afraid of getting murdered. Look at verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And it shows the value of, the, of a clear conscience before the Lord. But as we look at Cain's words, we have to wonder about his sincerity, don't we? Does he care that he's going to be hidden from God's face? Does he care that he killed his brother? Or is he just afraid that he's going to die a violent death? There's a way of sorrow that comes from consequences, but that's not grief over sin. I mean, I don't know about you, but I hate the consequences of decisions that I've made. I mean, I hate consequences of bad choices and sin that I have, but I have to get back to the reason behind those consequences, to realize there's already guilt before others and before the face of God, way before those consequences ever hit. We have to take responsibility for the guilt, for the sin, and put them on the Lord as seeking forgiveness. We have to acknowledge that. 2 Corinthians 7.10 talks about two different kinds of grief. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas a worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief doesn't want to take responsibility. That's the repentance of Cain. It's only sad he got caught. So there's consequences to pay. But godly grief regrets the sin that caused it all. Godly grief sees that sin offends God. Godly grief is sad that God is sad. Godly grief repents of sin, asks for forgiveness, and trusts in Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Which one describes your grief? Which one describes your repentance? Do you have any repentance inside your life? And if it's there, is it godly or is it worldly? Are you more upset over the consequences that you're facing? Or are you more upset by the sin that was at the beginning? Repent of the sin at the beginning. And what will you find? 1 John 1.9 speaks of it so clearly. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Cain didn't confess his sin. Cain never experienced the grace and the mercy of God that he could have. He doesn't experience restoration with God. They never speak again, as far as we can tell inside the scripture. The distance was there. Now, God's mercy, he does not treat Cain as he deserves to be treated. But he has this unexplainable mercy. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. There's a hedge of protection around Cain for his earthly life. He's not going to be killed by anyone else. They will, other people will not be able to treat Cain in the same way he treated his brother. He'll be shown way more mercy than he ever showed others. And he lives with that murder of his brother for the rest of his life. That doesn't mean that there's no judgment. He moved away immediately from the presence of the Lord. He became a wanderer. And if you fast forward all the way to Genesis chapter 6, you'll see that there is a flood which will take out all of his descendants. For their violence, because it continues. And if you move forward to eternity, we have the promise of, of, of a judgment to come. Here we see the same spirit of sin in the life of every person who rejects faith in Christ. And we see the same patience of God with each person as well. There's a patience that God has that should lead us to repentance. But it is a patience that ends someday. This is Genesis 6, reminds us that there's a flood that would come on all of Cain's descendants. So what do we do with all of this? I mean, this is one of those negative uh, sections of Scripture. Uh, We need more than negative uh, examples just to look at. I mean, sure, we might look at the life of Cain and think to ourselves, well, uh, I mean, I don't want to do that, but we need more than that. It's because in some ways, we're all like Cain. We've sinned. We worship falsely. We've harbored anger inside of our own hearts. We may have even taken a life. But we don't want to stay there. We don't want the curse and the rejection of God. If there's one thing we cannot stand is the thought of God's face not being present to us. If you are redeemed by God, that is the, the, the most fearful thing is not to see God's face. We need his grace. And God gives more grace. Sin doesn't have the final word, but God's grace does. And that's where Christmas comes in. That's where Advent comes in. Remember what the angel said in Luke 2, 14? They said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom God is well pleased. One thing that God is saying here, the angels are reminding us of, is that the peace, the peace is, is, is a good life of a relationship with God, and all of that comes as an act of God's grace. It's only possible because Jesus came into the world. Now, Cain, Cain thought that if he could make a good enough sacrifice, that God would have to accept him and bless him. And what didn't work, he became angry. This is a way that we reject God. This is, this is a way that thinking, if I can make a sacrifice big enough for God to accept, and, 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 and he'll accept and move on my behalf, I mean, that's the way that we hold God at a distance. Keeping God far enough away that we don't really have to trust, that we don't really have to obey. It's a way that Cain was, was really living by his works. He was trying to, to prove to God how good he was by the offering he brought so he could get something back. God doesn't need to be impressed like that, especially now, because God has already 
made the perfect offering. He made the perfect offering in sending his son Jesus. I mean, that's the offering that God gave. We receive from God. We receive grace from him. And any offering or sacrifice that we make afterwards is in response to his love. It's never to make him love us more. And we're reminded that Jesus Christ made that ex- perfect, acceptable sacrifice to God. Jesus Christ's sacrifice was given to God for God's glory, for the redemption of his people. None of us will ever make a truly uh, perfect offering to God. Our own sacrifices are tainted with sin. Even our best works are, but not Jesus's. His life was perfect. His offering was perfect. And through his sacrifice, our sins are forgiven. Cain feared that God would turn away his face from him and somehow he would be uh, murdered by someone else. But what did Jesus do? He provided the offering that would bring us back face to face with God again. He's the one through his death on the cross, he paid the penalty of sin that the thing that kept us from God would be removed. Grace brings us back to God. All of salvation is of grace. All of life is of grace. Jesus' sacrifice was perfect. It was acceptable. And in his sacrifice, he takes away our anger. He humbles our heart. He leads us to repentance because we realize in Jesus Christ, we've never been loved like we have in him. And so no matter how far you've fallen, no matter what sin you've given yourself to, Jesus offers that way of forgiveness and a way of forgiveness to all who come. Cain didn't have to walk away in sin and neither do you. You have a love that's for you in Christ. Will you take that new righteousness he brings? There's no sacrifice you can make because he's already made it. That's what Christmas reminds us. God sent Jesus to rescue us from our sin. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have uh, failed in so many ways. But your grace is available to all. And God, you are ready to forgive in Jesus Christ. While the world may have no place for, uh, for your followers, we may not find that we have a place often in this world. As God, we know we have a place with you because of what Jesus Christ has done. Help us to see our need. Help us to keep our eyes focused on Christ. And God, where we need restoration, would you restore us? Where we need strength to fight against sin and put it to death, who would rule over it, would you grant it? We ask you this, God, even knowing your great provision you've given to us in your word and your sacrament, as we come anticipating meeting with you in the Lord's Supper. We ask you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, stand.